Hello and welcome to Blam UK's online podcast. Through Blam UK's online platform, we will be providing you with a range of important, talented and diverse speakers talking to you about issues within the Black British community. So stay tuned as we spend these next couple of months exploring all the topics that we know you love and enjoy. So make sure you subscribe, listen and tune in. Starting firstly with Precious Tawi, who is the founder of a not-for-profit organisation called PsychoCool and is a trainee psychodynamic psychotherapist with a background in counselling and rehabilitation. Precious hopes to remove the stigma of mental health in the black and ethnic minority communities. Next, we have Ngozi Fulani, who is the founder of Sister Space. They are a community-based charity set up in 2015. They are a specialist service for African and Caribbean women who have been victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse. They also raise awareness about these issues within these communities. Fope Oleleyeyi. Fope is the National Union of Students Black Students Officer. Fope is also a politics graduate. Fope is an avid writer and has a recent compelling and insightful article in The Guardian called Talk of Anti-White Sentiment Distracts from the Fight Against Institutional Racism. And lastly, we have Natalie Kigeri. She is the chair of Black Thrive. Black Thrive is a partnership between communities, statutory organisations, voluntary and private sector groups. They work together to reduce the inequality and injustices experienced by black people in mental health services. They address the barriers which lead to poorer outcomes across a range of social factors, such as education, employment, housing, and so on, all of which negatively impact one's health and well-being. So I'd like to Hello thank everyone. them all. Thank you for joining us and today. And now we're going to start on the our podcast. Black and British Community and COVID-19 podcast. So what I'm going to do quickly is just um, get a good understanding of the background issues to share with you guys. Um, again, I want to thank our six panellists for joining us today. And we're going to get started. The facts and statistics around COVID-19, um, particularly looking at what I like to call the intersector race or also normalising um, the Black British narrative, which is our narrative. Um, firstly, we're looking at poverty um, and looking at the facts between poverty, race and COVID-19. So one of the boroughs with the highest COVID-19 death rate is in Brent. And Brent has the third lowest annual income in London. Um, and Brent has the third highest average household size in the country. And overcrowding is a big problem. Brent also has the largest proportion of ethnic minorities in London. Approximately 71% of the population are from an ethnic group other than white British. Um, and within 50% of the most deprived local authorities as well. Um, looking at COVID-19 education, um, what has been on the news quite a lot lately is the grade under predictions of ethnic minorities. Um, so we can see that they are routinely underpredicted under and also it's going to be a big problem because of this new teacher assessed grades. Looking at wealthier families, wealthier families are also three times more likely to hire a private tutor, while 10% of children in Britain come from lower income households, do not even have access to the internet. Um, and we also know that black families are disproportionately on free school meals and research has shown that families on free school meals have been 
currently waiting for weeks to um, get access to the vouchers the government has been providing. Looking at in the COVID-19 context, domestic violence, domestic abuse killings have more than doubled under the COVID-19 lockdown. And also looking at COVID-19 within the mental health aspect, amendments that have been made to the Mental Health Act 1983 as a result of the COVID. Um, these amendments increase the amount of time patients can be detained, rem- remove the need for a second professional opinion to authorise certain decisions and allow mental health tribunal hearings to be heard by phone. And, you know, mine, the charity, has really, really big concerns about the impact this will have on patients. Um, looking at the death of key workers, um, it says that a third of all key workers um, of working age are black Africans and they are empl- employed in 50% more key worker roles than the white British population. Additionally, black African men are respectively 310% more likely to work in healthcare than a white British male. And then looking at the BAME COVID-19 deaths by population, looking at the intersect of race in particular, I mean, it has been quite difficult to gather data because um, they don't actually record the COVID deaths by ethnicity only by gender um, and that is a big problem at the moment and also looking at research the Guardian has done last week they said that minority groups were overrepresented as much as 27% of the death toll of COVID-19 um, concerns have been growing about the disproportionate impact of the coronavirus on black Asian and minority ethnic people since figures were published earlier this month that showed almost 35% of the 2,000 COVID-19 patients in intensive care units in England and Wales were non-white, compared to 14% of the population in which BAME people are. And then I think it's also very useful for us to look at America as a case study as well. Um, and they found that African-Americans have been dying of coronavirus in the United States um, at a higher rate than whites and other ethnic groups. Um Black Americans only represent 13.4% of the American population, according to the US Census. Um, Counties with higher black populations account for more than half of all COVID-19 cases, and that's almost 60% of the deaths. So um, I think the panel will join in with me to say that these are very, very worrying and alarming statistics. So what I wanted to do is just um, see what the panel felt about some of these issues. And I'm going to start firstly with Precious, who is the founder of Psycho Call. And I wanted to ask, uh, you know, how do you feel about or how do you think the COVID-19 will and is affecting the well-being of uh, black British people? And within that answer, I wanted you to also discuss how does the intersect of race affect the black British community's ability to trust state services like the police and the NHS? Okay, so I find it really interesting because listening to the statistics and everything that you gathered in order to for us to discuss this on the podcast, um, I'm from Brent. I've lived in Brent for the past 22 years. And it's really interesting what's portrayed by the media or what's gathered and how it feels to actually live in the community because it doesn't... Again, a lot of things are, are reported and I might be a bit of a sceptical person when it comes to things that are reported, but it doesn't feel like there's that panic or that sense of um, despair in the air in Brent. I know from from what I see, we're all staying safe and I do, I've got a newborn, so I do have to go out every now and then to grab stuff for him and it doesn't feel like the way it's being portrayed on the, in the media and I think that's typical of anything that happens, especially when it comes to, so for example, a lot of, um, I'm, I love social media and uh, I've seen a lot of lives and stuff that, you know, people have been engaging in. I've seen the positive and negative sides of those lives as well. Um, Instagram lives, uh, website lives, all sorts of things. Um, So it's been interesting to see how people have been using um, the internet more to kind of connect with each other. But of course, we have heard the statistics about um, DV, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Um, So there has been kind of positive and negative effects. Um, So yeah, I think it's difficult to kind of give a blanket answer as to how it's been for the whole community but I do think it's really important that however it's been for the individual I think it, it, it's such a no one's ever 
been through anything like this um, before. And so I think it, it's okay to accept that this is new, this is a new process, and we're going through it, we're going with it. And, you know, every day may be different for each person. I mean, to call a spade a spade, I don't think, let's, for example, the police, they don't really have the best um, working relationship with um, ethnic minority communities. And I don't think, you know, in a, in a state of pandemic where every everything is already heightened, it's not going to get any better. Um, but in terms of the NHS, I've seen, um, I went for a walk with my son yesterday and I saw, you know, people in their windows have, we support the NHS. And I think it's because a lot of us have family members or, you know, um, friends, um, you know, people around us that are still, who, who are key workers, who are still fighting the fight every day and trying their best to help as many people as they can. So I think there's a skew where it comes to the NHS and so on, where we're more involved, um, you know, and it's more personal to us. I think I, from what I've seen, the relationship is a lot stronger, whereas with the police and so on, I've seen not the best response to them, but I mean, that's come from years of um, mistrust. So I don't think that's really going to change. Understandable. I mean, in particular, when looking at the point to do with the NHS, um, from what I've seen on Twitter and things that were trending, there's been a lot of evidence about you know black people when they're suffering in pain they're not being dealt with adequately we saw about the lady in Peckham who was sent yeah. away and there's been a lot of discussion about you know historically in the NHS system how um, black people's pain hasn't been upheld or seen as as important as their white counterparts and studies and statistics do yeah. say that so I think in that regard in particular how do you think within this pandemic phase how the black British community in terms of how they access the service not that they are in the service but how they access the service how do you think that that distrust is displaying in the COVID-19 context? I think it's difficult, especially because, you know, when you read stories about what happens to that lady, it does kind of create anxiety within yourself. Um, What I feel... Um, in terms of kind of my own experiences of, you know, I had, um, for example, an emergency scan booked, was just completely cancelled, and I've just been told it will be booked whenever it will be booked, and there's experience before. Um, so to to say that this is happening because of this, I think it's difficult to do. But, um, yeah, we're, in terms of how we're being treated by the NHS, I, am, I may be slightly biased because before I went to paternity leave, I was working in an NHS environment, and so I've seen positive um, positive treatment uh, and, I, and I guess for me I only like to speak from what I what I see and know to be factual but from my own experiences but I can completely take into the account that you know a lot of people do feel like they've been um, hard done by as well so okay and thank you I'm going to also just add into that what because your background is working within mental health um, what would yeah. you say are the best yeah. coping mechanisms for your mental health within the crisis and I mean I talk for my position because I live in Brixton and in Brixton the black population is about 30% however in the detained parts of the mental health institutions uh, we are like 70% so we're really overrepresented so for me I'm all trying to you know particularly for the community find you know really really good um, helpful coping mechanisms particularly because we are in this crisis at the moment and that support is going to be needed particularly because you know when we've never been in a sort of situation before so from your point of view as a professional what would you say are good coping Uh mechanisms for people that are not enjoying the lockdown that are not happy with the fact that they're confined in maybe small spaces things like that I think the most important thing is to not be too hard on ourselves. I think I've seen a lot of things online about, you know, people completing a book in a day and people writing a thesis in three hours. And there's a lot of what it feels like almost competition online to kind of live up to a certain standard. And this is not the norm. This is not... um, this is not life as we know it. And I think a lot of people are putting pressure on themselves to perform. I think in this time where we don't, a lot of us don't know what's happening. We don't, it's not like we know that, okay, on the 5th of July at five o'clock, we'll all be able to go outside. We don't know when this is going to end. And so what's most important is we're looking at after ourselves as we go. And so whatever makes you feel good in in this moment and whatever it is that is best for your mental health. So if it means, you know, I'm going to just stay in bed today because 
because I can't really, I don't, I don't really want to do anything else. That's okay. Of course, we have to consider that some people are still working from home and some people, you know, have responsibilities and other things that they need to do. It's still important that people are able to process for themselves that they're, um, you know, what is going on for them and take each, each, each day as it comes rather than trying to figure out everything in one go. I like your point. I think it's definitely focusing on yourself, not feeling like you have to compare yourself to yeah. anyone else. So, precious, okay. I'm aware... I'm aware that you have a group that, you know, specialises in keeping people informed about their mental health and, you know, giving them support and things like that and signposting them to, to write services and things, things similar to that nature. So how are you providing support yeah. to people this particular time? Um, looking at a Black British context, how are you able to communicate with the community at this time? I think, so the most important thing that... Um, our team are trying to do is kind of keep all our content online um, quite light-hearted simply because you know the times are quite serious and on the news and in almost every whatsapp broadcast and everything it's it seems quite doom and gloom at the moment so whilst we do uh, like to focus on psychoeducation a lot and um, informing people about uh, different things to do with mental health at this particular moment our main goal is to continue to remind people that it's okay to process this however they choose to process it so if it means that as I said before if it means that you decide not to do anything today or if it means that you just you do decide to take a run today that's okay and it's we're, we're constantly just trying to remind people that to allow their process to be their process this is the, completely the unknown and a lot of people may feel that they have to do certain things or they have to achieve certain things and I think putting yourself putting that kind of pressure on yourself at this time is really damaging and also taking into consideration the fact that this is completely different for everyone so some people are again as I said some people are working from home and that might be I mean I know a lot of my colleagues are still working and there is a sense of resentment because you know they're seeing everyone else at home and it's seeming like they're having so much fun whereas there are people at home who you know are having to um homeschool their children and finding that difficult so there are struggles in everyone's journeys and we're all trying to make sense of what's going on for us and so I think it's most important to kind of look inwardly rather than outwardly because at the moment everything else is going to seem and feel better and uh, it's about understanding that no this is me and this is my journey this is me trying to process what's going on for me and for myself and making the best of that so that's what we're trying to highlight um you know and posting memes and stuff and kind of keeping uh what's current but putting light-hearted spin on it because there's enough going on uh, and we don't want to kind of bombard everyone with factual things right now I think it's just important to kind of keep a sense of community and a place where people can kind of come and laugh or smile or just feel good about themselves because I think we all need that at the moment yeah I think that's a very very useful angle I think there's you said there's a lot of negativity out there on the news um you can see it on social media yeah. and whatsapp so I think it's important to change the tune and to allow you know fresh and different content so you know if anybody's looking for um a social media page or somewhere that you can be feeling uplifted please check out psycho cool um i will be tweeting them out on the bland page but definitely um follow and and check their content out so thank you so much precious and precious is going to remain on the call i mean she has any other contributions she's more than welcome to so we're now going to move on to our next speaker who is going to look at things from a slightly different angle we're going to move on to Ngozi from sister space and sister space is a domestic violence organization that um, focuses on working particularly with black women um, and looks at things from that context. So I'm going to invite Ngozi now to come to tell us about, you know, how she's seen COVID-19 with the intersect of race. Because as I mentioned, there's been a high prevalence of domestic violence cases within this COVID-19 context. Actually, more than double the normal statistics of the year before and stuff like that. So um, I'll be really, really interested if Ngozi could tell us about, you know, how COVID-19 is affecting black women who are at risk of domestic violence. Okay, um, can you all hear me? Yes. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm from Sister Space, which is an organisation dedicated to supporting African and Caribbean heritage women and girls affected by domestic and sexual abuse. And we, um, pardon me, I have to keep the phone on low because I'm actually on call. You will know that we are disproportionately affected 
whether there's a, a, a pandemic or not, we find that as African heritage women and girls, um, we are... I'm, I'm going to have to turn off the phone, but I'm on call, so it's, it's very difficult. Um, when we uh, go to the system for support, we're the least likely to be heard anyway. So in a situation like this, with this COVID-19 pandemic, you will understand that we're likely to be at the bottom of the bottom of the pile. Um, we're also taking into consideration that a lot of the women, um, and I've heard you reference Black British quite a few times, and I, and I need to make it clear that in this situation, Black British or other, we're all affected and so sister space we will support everybody african and caribbean heritage and so we don't i mean what is black british i mean i was born here i'm actually a registrar i gave people their british citizenship but you will know that the government can decide i don't belong here i'm windrush they can ship me out so let's not you know be comforted too much by this black british thing so how does it affect us it it's um We've got three people just this week alone who have decided to leave their safe house and go back to where the abuse was simply because this system that's supposed to support African heritage women, when they go for... What is this um, this new funding thing? Um, uh, is it the not, furlough? No. No, it's the... the benefit system okay the, yes the universal credit that they made us right, yeah yeah well there have been people who've been in hiding for two weeks and they've still not got a payment so we're actually having to dig into our own personal resources to do we do food deliveries every single day every single day and london all right so we're, we're not being supported on many levels and a lot of the women and girls are afraid to ask for help from a system that could well keep their their information and deport them after or otherwise punish them. We, we've come from a, um, a, historically, we have come from a very hostile environment. So we're also dealing with the fact that I might present with symptoms, but if I go to the hospital or if I go to this place or that place, maybe there'll be a problem for me. So we're not reporting. But in terms of domestic abuse, my goodness, yes, it's it's through the roof in the black community. Now, somebody mentioned Harlesden earlier, and I know there was recently a, a, a really terrible domestic abuse case there where the woman actually died. Um, I myself was born and raised in Brent, although I'm Hackney now. And I'm very familiar with the area. My family still live there. And... Um, a previous speaker is correct. This drama around um, COVID-19 is, is largely media frenzy because we've all had to adapt as, as black people often have to. We just have to adapt to what's out there, you know? Um, so I think that we should make it clear that we do need to be alarmed. We really do need to be alarmed because there seems to be another agenda. I won't go into that now. But it's happening to us disproportionately. So we need to be alarmed, but we don't need to be panicked. All right? So within this situation, what I would advise is that um, there's a lot of people that you may be speaking to on the phone um, who are in a domestic situation but can't um, share that, either because the perpetrator is in the room or for other reasons. And so what we need to be is proactive and we need to be listening to what they're not saying rather than what they're saying. You know, so this is this situation, again, as the previous speaker said, it, it's... it's unheard of we've never had this before but i know that we hear on sky tv we hear it on bbc news we hear it all over the place that domestic abuse women are suffering and then when we look at who's speaking they don't look like us all right so there's nobody there who can talk about our hair or our skin so we're represented by so-called B-A-M-E, and I really hate that term because it places every other non-middle-class white group into one pot, and then in this pot 
is just white middle class people. And within this vain pot, everybody thinks they can speak for us. So you often have, and I find usually South Asian women speaking on our behalf. And there's also people identifying now as black, whereas when I was growing up, and I'm, I'm a fair bit older than most of you, when I was growing up, if you called a South Asian person black, that's fighting talk. So now where the government and the system has us fighting with each other for this small resource that's supposed to sort us out, who's going to tell me as an African woman with hair like, because my head don't blow in the wind, I can't wash and go. You see, what do you know about me? And and it's a very serious subject, but I've got to say this to you. I've got to share this with you. I nearly took my TV back to Argos because whichever station I turned to during this COVID-19, my, my television not showing black people. So I thought, something wrong with the TV? <laughs> you know, you know you have to kind of make light to stay on top. But it's a very serious um, situation where others dare to think they can speak for us. And I think what we need to do as, as a people is to make it very clear, you cannot speak for me. I'm very capable of speaking for myself. All right, so that's that's to start with. Is there anything specifically you wanted to um me to talk about? Well, what I was going to say is that I definitely second the point about um, the fact that, uh, you know, we're disproportionately dying as NHS workers. But when it comes to people asking questions to um, Boris Johnson at his press conference, we don't see people like us in the room. We're being disproportionately affected, but our voice is not centred or not heard in discussion. And I think it's very, very important that we are represented. I mean, the fact that we are in this country, we ha- definitely have the right to have a seat at the table. But we see it time and time again. We are often silenced or left out. And I think that is something that needs to definitely be stopped and I think also I think it was really good that you um, brought into question the issue of those of us that are of migrant backgrounds or immigrants in terms of how the system is using a sort of supple jeopardy against us in terms of if we go and seek help we living in this hostile environment will be penalised for seeking help I, I, I read a case recently of a man who was they had to literally carry him to the hospital because he was refusing to go on the basis that he was so scared that he would get deported because so people are even putting their health yeah their health above well it's like immigration say it's above their health and, and it's very very sad and I think that that's a discussion that we don't often hear but because our narrative is not centred we don't hear this, this, these narratives in the open as much as they need to be I think you know what's really important and I take on everything you've just said is that there is an age divide and I and I think that the older people need to be talking to the younger people and vice versa mm. because not, there's a gap um, I mean, that's a generational dialogue definitely well, we don't always understand what's happening in your world and you don't understand what's happening in ours. And and this is a time we really need to know what's going on because we have lost, um, within the sister space, we've lost three people in the last two weeks, not directly working for sister space, but they were associated with us at one time. And it's this so-called COVID-19. And they're all... Um, what you would call mature in years, okay? Not necessarily elderly, but they're mature in years. And there's a big fear. And I think if you spoke to your parents or your, your aunties or whatever, the, the dialogue that you would have with them would may surprise some of you who are not already engaging in conversation because there's a massive fear. There is a massive fear that those who have worked, whether they're British citizens or not, they have worked and they have contributed to this country and they have been law-abiding and, and, and everything else. And when it comes down to it, there is, be under no illusion, be under no illusion, I think we need to be clear about this, we are being treated very badly by our local boroughs, by our government and you know on Thursday I was out there the first Thursday I was out there clapping for NHS I actually work in one of the hospitals as a domestic violence advisor and although I'm the CEO of the company I'm also frontline so 
I work there and I, I have an NHS badge, but I don't wear it. And I was like, that was clapping, just like everybody else the first Thursday. Then when I get back in and I look at the news and I see the images that they're showing of NHS, I said, but wait, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to never think it's black people. I've gone into dialect now. You're going to never think it's black people bring up this country. Yeah, I can't help it. It happens. Yeah, especially when my heart is hurting. So I'm looking at the BBC. I'm looking at Sky. I'm turning everywhere, and I'm just seeing all these white people. And the only time I'm seeing black people is when they show up dead. Mm. This is a problem. So the following Thursday, my neighbours did look for me. They couldn't see me at all. Going out there clapping for who? What? <laughs> no. So I think, you know, I make light of it because if I don't, I don't know what would happen. It's a very serious situation we're in. And I think what we can do is be more receptive to our younger. And so I actually commend you, absolutely commend you and the other panel members for doing this. I was on a panel this morning with the organisation called Safe Lives. I don't know if you know them. They are the institute who are responsible for UK-wide domestic abuse. UK-wide. And the CEO, um, I'm a bit of a... um I'm a bit of a, how do you say it? I, I don't conform when I'm in these places. So the government is quite aware of me. They never know what I'm going to say or do. So being my usual self, we was in a police um, government mopac something. I wasn't invited, but I got in. And then I started to speak and I... I behaved very unconventional. And the CEO approached me afterwards and we invited her down to the sister space to see how we really do it because we're grassroots and we're proud. Yeah, I don't, I'm, listen, I have my master's, I have my degree, I have everything. I used to be a teacher. I've got all those things that other people have, but I'm essentially me and I'm very proud of my African self and I refuse to conform. So when I go into these meetings, I look like my authentic self. And I think more of us need to show up as we are with our beautiful selves and make no apology for it because when we do speak, they have to listen. But until we speak collectively, nothing's going to change. I agree. That's a very, very powerful statement there. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, we just have to be, you know, there's a lot of movement online about being unapologetically black, and I think that falls into that as well, just being ourselves, not feeling like we have to conform, and actually speaking truth to power. Um, and another thing, question I wanted to ask you, Ngozi, was um, how does the intersect of race and gender affect... Um, black women's ability to trust state services like the police, particularly looking at a domestic violence context? Wow. I'm going to go off here, you know. <laughs> I'm going to go off here, you know. My, the difficulty I have uh, as someone charged by the mayor's office to be responsible for domestic abuse in the African heritage community, Pan-London, is that I can't be telling my sisters to trust a system that I myself don't trust. I mean, I trust them on that side. Sorry. Okay. Yeah? This is, this is our space, right? And we can just be our, ourselves. That's true. I can't tell my sisters, especially when they're in trauma, the only time I advise really sisters to go to the police, no questions asked, is if they're in immediate danger. If you're in immediate danger, I would always tell you, call 999 and get yourself out of there. Mm. But unfortunately, that's where it stops with me because I see front line what is happening. I see the disrespect, yeah? Sometimes from the so-called BAME community, yeah? That we share a pot with. Mm. Um, we, we often have these statements that say, oh, big strong girl like you, I can't believe you couldn't handle him. Or they're going to say, wow. where is your good mark? And because we're black women, they kind of see us like men, if you will. So as our white and Asian counterparts may appear to them in more need of protection. So there is no softness here. So why would you go to a police force that historically has abused us? And like I said, some of us are coming back from the 60s and 70s and we knew when beating black people was a national sport. I'm sorry, but, you know, they don't like us to speak of these things, but that's our truth. We saw it. And we, uh, Valerie Ford, have you heard of Valerie Ford? 
Yes. Right. Some of you won't have, and I ask you, for, if nothing else, please look up the sister Valerie Ford, who went to Stoke Newington Police Station and said, my partner has, my ex-partner is threatening to burn down the house with me and the children in it. And the police put it down as a threat to property. So when she was murdered and her 23-month-old daughter was murdered, there was this whole thing about what needs to change and, and nothing has changed, right? Because with the sister that was murdered in Harlesden, there's also, I think um, there's been a referral to the police complaints authority or something similar. So we're still having those same challenges now as we had then, where you can't go to the police station or housing or any other, even the violence against women and girls, VWAG sector, and expect to be treated equally. So we're not asking for preferential treatment. We're asking for equal treatment, which we're entitled to. So yeah, it's really a, a problem, a massive problem. Thank you. And thanks for going into that much that much detail. I think it's just necessary to take the, the issues heads on. I think that case study is going to be something for people to at least look at and see how black women in particular are experiencing domestic violence within the racialised context. And I think also for many women, from what I hear and research I've seen, is that, you know, some of them don't feel comfortable handing over their partners or their brothers to a, a partner to a system which they know has disproportionately... Um, killed them disproportionately treated them unfairly so they have that, that intercept that is there doesn't make them comfortable to even trust the service in itself in its entirety on the head because most women want the domestic abuse to stop but they don't want their ex-partner or their partner or whoever the abuser is to be hurt mm-hmm. and we know that when we call the system on our abuser whether they be the partner, ex-partner, brother, father, or whoever the abuser is, we know that there's a chance that they can be seriously harmed or killed in that system. So that's a major consideration. Mm. Thank you so much. what another question which I wanted to ask was, you know, you've made mention about the work that you're doing. So I want to just share with um, those that will be listening, you know, what type of support you're, you're delivering at this time, you know, how women can possibly contact you. Because um, as we said, that it needs to be more of a dialogue between the older and young community. And I think it would be really, really good if more people that are particularly younger. I mean, I saw, I don't know if you saw on the, the TL as well, Precious, a young girl that had uh, been beaten up by her partner recently and went viral. Um, and there was a lot of like you know some other family members trying to cover it up and saying that she should just deal with it and you know it really brought the whole question of domestic violence into the TL space um, so I think it's important that your services yeah. are, are known about we need a whole platform for this debate because we're dying at the hands of our, of the people that are supposed to love us and we still have this thing where we don't air our dirty linen in public mm. move outside and shout listen my partner knows I'll go outside Right, he's not mad anyway, he's not mad. But I'll go outside and everybody and their family will know that this happened, yeah? Mm-hmm. So we're supposed to name and shame, but, the, but there is a way to do this safely. I really do appreciate, um, again, this, this platform and I will give you my details and, and ask you to, to, to have them out there. We're sister space, we're on Twitter, book face, <laughs> yeah? Um, but we also have these young, we have young independent domestic violence advisors, yeah? Um, So where somebody may not feel comfortable speaking to an older person, maybe they will, but you may feel comfortable speaking to someone around that age. So we have the the whole whatever. But we also have the auntie project and we have something called Mango Money. The auntie project, that's really in the culture. I love it. (laughs) We don't do coffee morning. We have Mango Money. (laughs) We type the thing. See? So family, sister space is here for you. Mm. All right? So you'll find us. We'll make sure that you get our information and you can put it out there. But it's nothing but love, you know? Nothing but love for you guys. Really. Thank you so much, Ngozi, and thank you for you know creating that space just for us to authentically be ourselves, as you said so well earlier. Um, so what I'm going to do now is switch to the next panel member we have speaking. So our next speaker that we have is Fope, who is currently the NUS's Black Student Officer. Um, and the questions I've got for Fope is more looking around, uh, particularly 
the COVID-19 within the Black Witch community at the moment. Um, so the question I have for you, Fopé, is if minorities are overrepresented in high-risk occupations during COVID-19 and are more likely to live in deprived and overcrowded urban areas and have high instances of multi-generational um, households, what do you feel could be done to help social distancing and social isolation effectively in Black households to prevent the spread of coronavirus amongst the Black community? And also, within that question, I think it'd be really good if you could, you know, say to what extent do you think structural racism has a part to play in some of these um, things that I've mentioned that are problematic within um, the Black British community looking at it from a COVID-19 perspective? Um, okay, so obviously a very small question. Um, um, I just want to say thank you for inviting me on this. And I also want to say thank you to the other speakers because listening to the conversation so far has been so insightful and this has been so brilliant. Um, and I want to touch on some things that other people have said because it all fits into this large question you've asked me, which basically boils down to, yes, structural racism is at play here. And these... Um, factors, the fact that, you know, black communities are more likely to be in precarious jobs, that we're more likely to have high risk um, occupations, um, we're also more likely to live in deprived and overcredited areas. That is all because of structural racism. It's, you know, it's not something that exists in isolation. It is just a symptom of the larger cause. Um, and what we are seeing because of the pandemic is you know, just revealing the gaping wound that has always existed in our society. Um, all it is, is we're seeing the exposure of the widening economic divides. We're seeing the highlighting of the cracks in health inequality. We're seeing the fact that, you know, the virus itself obviously isn't racist. I've had many conversations with students and staff members and academics alike. Like, you know, how can a disease be racist? And anyone who says that's clearly, like, stupid, but I'm like, mm. you're misunderstanding how racism is pervasive in society. It's the yes. fact that, you know, you know, if you're more likely to have precarious jobs, if you're more likely to not have enough money to eat and live and rent, you're going to leave the house. You're not going to socially distance. You're not going to stay in quarantine. You're going to go out and earn money, not just look after yourself, but look after your family, who will probably all living with you. And if you're more likely to go out, you're more likely to catch the disease. And from the examples given earlier, if you're you know, an immigrant as well, that's like a double layer of concerns. And um, one of the answers I was going to give to like, how do we ease the burden one of the main things is the way the police are working within this crisis. Um, as of March 26th, the police actually got increased police powers. Um, when you look at a lot of the details around that, it's very vague. It basically means that they can stop anyone who they think that is breaking quarantine laws or not speaking distancing um, based on any reasons they believe to have. Um, I've researched it quite a lot. It's really, really vague. And I think all we're going to see, and we've seen examples on Twitter, is just that they have more reason to stop black people, basically. Mm. And also just to add into that, you know, the first woman that was arrested under the Coronavirus Act was a black woman. And only because of the fact that the British Arms Police tweeted about it and we knew that that had happened and they investigated it and found out that actually they arrested her under an act that doesn't exist. They arrested her for failure to stop and count. But there's no law under the Coronavirus Act that gave the the police powers to do that. And, you know, it was no surprise to me that it was a black woman that was the first person to be tried under the act. So we can see the racism coming into play as well. Exactly. I mean, like, if you just compare any of the stats to stop and search, where we see that black people are 40 times more likely to be stopped and searched than white counterparts, um, yeah. just seeing the future of these increased powers. And there's been actually no discussion of what happens post-COVID-19, whether or not these powers will stay, whether or not mm. they be, whether or not they, just, they can carry on for whatever they want is extremely worrying. So... Um, in terms of, yeah, 40 times more 40 likely. 40 times, yes, that's very true. 40 times, yes. It's not even, It's I wouldn't say it's baffling, but also it's not surprising because we, we know that the police are institutionally racist. And like this came out 21, 22 years ago, and we know this, but for some reason we're still debating whether or not the police are terrible to our communities and whether or not we're able to trust them. And the answer is, of course, we can't trust them. They've given us absolutely no reason to trust them. Mm. And I see that um, leaching into the way um, the black community, specifically black women, trust um, uh, state services. I think the conversation about domestic violence has been such a relevant one. And personally, I come from an abusive household. Uh, my biological dad was abusive towards my mum. And I have a very vivid memory that popped into my head during the discussion of when I woke up in the middle of the night with a police officer in my room. He was a white police officer. And despite the fact that I know my father was a very violent man, 
the white police officer in my room did not bring me comfort. It did not bring me safety. It did not let me know that I am safe now. I just felt more fear. And so when you compound the fact that, you know, you're living in a time when women, specifically like black women, are more likely to be victims of domestic violence and uh, sexual assault, um, and they can't even trust the people who are, and I put this in quotations, meant to protect us, you're looking at the fact that so many women in this country, specifically black women, are stuck between a rock and a hard place in a time when they can't leave the house, they can't go to the places where they may be safety and comfort, they can't, you know, leave anywhere, they can't go to their jobs, they can't go to places where they would be able to find reprieve. Um, it genuinely worries me so much. So, and the fact that when the government was called up on this, the only comms they came out with was like the hand saying that we believe you, something like that. It was just absolutely abysmal what the government does for people's domestic violence in this country. Um, in terms of what else the government should be doing, um, they should definitely be looking at rent freezes. I think it's actually ridiculous that in a time when they're talking about mortgage freezes, that people are still expecting um, being expected to pay rent when they can't get money from their job. I don't understand the logic there, especially when you know the fact that more likely black communities are more likely to rent than own their homes. Um, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that um, there is no questions of who can afford to not work and who can. Um, there's also been a really worrying trend of food scarcity at the moment, especially with like students. Um, as my role in the NUS, I work a lot with um, BME students, obviously black students as well. And I've had loads of conversations with students who had jobs at their uni town. To, obviously, they can't do that anymore. And so now they're having to choose between whether or not I pay my rent, whether or not I um, get some food, or whether or not I save for a rainy day when post-COVID-19. And that's a conversation that... Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a conversation that I feel like we're not even there yet. We're still at the point of whether or not, you know, is it racist or maybe there's something within black people that means we're more susceptible to the virus. And there is no understanding of the socioeconomic lens of what's happening. Um, that's a very rough picture of what's happening at the moment. But I think the main answer is that we need to be talking about, like, universal credit. We need to be looking at a livable, you know, basic, basic income. I think the fact that, you know, our basic income at the moment is £9.30 or £10.75 in London is ridiculous. People can't live on that. And we're seeing the pandemic exposing that wound. So these are big conversations and no answer will be found in one day. But there are so many people starting where we should be. Thank you so much. I think your answer, you know, touched on so much different places. And I think it was really good that you brought the police narrative into it. Because I think, yeah, so often we've become desensitised to it because we're so used to it. But it's actually good to, you know, break it down, compound and see how that is affecting structural racism in terms of how you're experiencing the crisis. Um, Another thing I wanted you to touch on was... um, you know, what do you feel needs to be done to tackle the health inequalities and deprivation in low-income households to prevent um, the spread of coronavirus amongst the black British population, the black population? And I think also within that, you know, the fact that... I wanted to obviously highlight the fact that, you know, they're not even recording the deaths of BME people as well. So I think that's something that could be discussed as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this, again, this is a, this is a symptom of a larger conversation here. Um, what we're seeing... Um, isn't just you know racism and structural racism within the healthcare um, public healthcare. We're seeing the fact that I don't think BME communities, specifically black communities, trust healthcare. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's founded. If you look at the history of public health, we know that so many cures, um, so many medicines. The only reason we have them is because they were tested unconsented on black people. Um, the great idea or workshop on this and decolonizing medical um, care. And one of the greatest examples we have of that is the reason we have the cure for syphilis is because black men were taken and were injected with it into their body without their consent. Um, and that's and that's something like that, I think you begin to understand, okay, yeah, this is why black people don't go to GPs. This is why they don't go to healthcare. And obviously I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I think anyone who's anti-vaxxer doesn't understand the science. But at the same time, I am cognizant of the fact that, of course, there are going to be black people who don't trust state-mandated healthcare or state-mandated vaccines. It makes sense when you look at the history. And I think there is a lack of acknowledgement of that. There is this constantly telling, and again, I think this is a generational divide, a lot of older people, like, you're just completely and utterly stupid for not trusting them. When you look at their own fears and worries, it makes completely perfect sense why they wouldn't trust these people. Like, look at their lives. Have they ever cared about them? No, not at all. So why should they trust it now? Um, 
And then I think the second part of that, in terms of like healthcare, we are seeing that they don't they don't move that pain. You know, um, we see that a lot with specifically in like the fact that black pregnant women are more likely to die in British healthcare than any other demographic. We see the um, it's a psychological term the fact that you know people and people um, pain providers, you no know, medicine providers don't believe us when we say we need paid meds they think we can take on an absorbent amount of pain and anytime we ask for any type of help or relief we're just faking it because we're obviously all drugs um so we're seeing a compounding of all of that plus the fact that they aren't measuring the deaths of covid19 by ethnicity and the reason they don't want to do that is because by acknowledging the fact that you know black people bme people what have you are more likely to die you have to acknowledge the fact that our society is predicated on sexist racist classist lines and i don't think the tory government want to do that Thank you so much. I think you've really unpacked that answer for us and given us a very, very powerful answer. So um, what I'm going to be doing now is asking Natalie to um, answer some questions. So Natalie, your question, your first question is very similar to the one in which was just asked by Fope. Um I don't know if you just want to add into that, but yes, um, the question I have is just, you know, if minorities are overrepresented in the high-risk occupations, you know, the fact that we're living in the private, you know, overcrowded areas, and I want you to... You know, talk about the intersect of mental health with that as well in terms of living in these overcrowded urban areas. Um, and then, you know, to what extent you think structural racism is at play. So, yes, Natalie, the floor is open to you. Um, so, um, thank you for um, inviting me to kind of take part. And it's been really um, interesting kind of hearing everybody. Um, so, your question about whether this is about racism, I think the only answer to that is absolutely. Um, you know, that it's kind of a lot of the kind of narrative around um, the disproportionate impact on black communities, you know, in terms of trying to find biological explanations. Um, even if you were to look for a biological explanation, that would still need to be understood within the context of the social, cultural and kind of structural, you know, the, the racist structures in which we, in which we exist. Um, and I think in particular... So it's kind of really thinking about like rather um, rather than just kind of helping people out of the river, it's how do we stop people from falling in in the first place? Um, and part of that is also thinking about uh, what was kind of highlighted already in terms of like the fact that these systems are not designed for us. Um, and so it, I think even reflections in our work, lots of the decisions about black people's lives are largely made by people who are from white middle class backgrounds mm. or who look at our knees through a white Eurocentric lens which isn't for us Um, and and making those decisions without involving us in those conversations and so that's fundamentally problematic so another structural aspect is that lack of representation of people from black backgrounds um, who are in senior leadership roles where they're actually kind of being involved in kind of making those decisions so um, you know and so when you don't have those structures in place it's so important to find other mechanisms in the interim because it's a uh, you know it's going to take time in order to see an improvement in the representation of um, black communities in senior senior roles but actually to make sure that we have mechanisms where communities can um, be involved in the you know the decision making in terms of the services that are delivered the areas that are, you know, a priority and where kind of funding is spent and who they spend it on. So even in terms of the kind of the response to COVID-19, you know, it was alluded to earlier, but you're seeing lots of people now mobilising around this agenda and in particular wanting to capitalise. And, you know, what we kind of unapologetically say is that kind of kind of benefiting from the suffering of black people um and you know and i think it's so important that actually if we really want to understand it from a structural racist perspective then we need to ensure that black people are 
leading this agenda and the risk that we have in particular when we're trying to work at pace to kind of respond to you know the you know evident need is that that you know black-led organizations are not part of that conversation um and that's largely because again because of structural racism we are likely to be um sort of smaller organizations that are generally underfunded and so we're now in a situation where we have you know, you know, largely trying to, you know, run our organisations pre-COVID on a shoestring and being very innovative and creative about doing that. And then post or during COVID and post-COVID, we're likely to have, um, you know, an increased demand on services. So, uh, you know, on our services. So for me, it's so, so important that you know, black, again, black people are going to be disproportionately in, impacted in terms of employment. We have we're going to have black people who are at home, who are ready and waiting, you know, and waiting to be mobilised. So it's really important that we create spaces where we can come together so that we can actually deliver the solutions for ourselves. Um, and so a lot of the work that we do is trying to kind of influence the funders in terms of thinking about, well, who are you funding? There is no point funding a white late organisation that doesn't know anything about the communities that they're trying to um, deliver services do. Their structures themselves do not have any representation from people of the communities that they're delivering services to. So that in itself should raise alarm bells. And these are the kind of conversations that we're having. And, you know, they're being received. Um, but what, how that plays out in practice, you know, we have yet to, to see. Um, I think that, so that, that I think that kind of we're coming from, a, a, you know, from, from an organisational perspective, actually, we need to make sure that, you know, funders, that be statu whether that be statutory um, funding or whether that be philanthropic funding, actually there's an opportunity for black-led organizations and individuals who just want to do stuff in their community to be able to do that and to be resourced to be able to do that so where is the money going for this work so anybody who is funding um, any kind of activity around COVID-19 you know part of that collecting the equalities data for me is who are you funding and where is this going you know and what proportion of that money is actually going to be um you know, received by communities, are they actually going to feel it or is that all going to be absorbed in management costs? Mm. So I think that is one of the things that, you know, for us is, um, you know, uh, you know that aside in terms of like the impact that's having on our com communities um, in, in terms of, you know, on the kind of individual level, but kind of thinking about it from a systems level, how do we um, kind of address it? Um, I think, you know, data is important. So being data informed is a really important part. And that's why the equalities data is so important, but also the kind of qualitative data, the stories, our, our individual narratives, our collective narratives are absolutely vital for us to understand what's going on and how on earth we're supposed to address this, you know? Um, I think that's kind of um, key. And as I said, you know, we need to be at the forefront um, of the agenda for change. And um, I, I really know. agree on the point that you've made about um, funding because I don't know if you know about an organisation called Charity So White, but they've done a lot of work about the charity sector being extremely very white um, and funding not being distributed equally to black-led or Bain-specific yeah. groups. And I and yeah. I think it's it's really important that that dialogue is had. And I think that the element of white saver complex within that narrative of, you know, we can come into spaces that, you know, we don't, may not understand or, you know, don't, are not on the grassroots level, how we could take funding costs and lead projects even though, and leave the people who we are serving completely out of management and completely out of the whole organisation altogether, which is very, very dangerous and problematic in itself. Yeah, and I think that I think the charity so white kind of movement has raised, you know, and highlighted some really entrenched structural problems within the charity sector. Um, and again, you know, no surprise that in those organisations, you know, you're usually like for me, even when I worked in the kind of charitable sector, I was often the only black face around the table, and that's not really changed a kind of a, a, a huge amount. So we've got. We've got a long way to go, and you know, and you know, we're, we're we're finding ways of kind of doing this and influencing recruitment processes within um, local authorities. So, um, you know, I've worked with them to develop a AD role 
um, around community engagement and health. Um, and that role is has been designed to actually address the structural racism within um, their their system, basically, and improve representation. And part of that process is we actually got people from the community interviewing the candidates. So we had our first set of candidates today. And actually, that in itself, actually communities being jointly responsible for recruiting the officers who are meant to be serving them, like that is really the way we need to start thinking about how we share power with communities and that potentially could help in terms of addressing some of the issues that we have around trust and even for us in our work that we're doing you know we work very closely with the system and in, in particular our mental health we know that black people are more likely to present when their um, condition is is, is 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 much more acute so and then their recovery is also um, not the same as their white counterparts um, and so there is sometimes that tension between trying to encourage people to access support but actually knowing that it might not necessarily be the right fit and so there is um, a, you know a balance that we we have so you know we're on the one hand trying to develop culturally appropriate peer support and advocacy you know offers um, you know you you know trying to um, encourage them to embrace um, like emotional emotional emancipation circles, which are kind of black-only healing spaces, um, you know, in particular around bereavement, that's going to be a massive, um, going to have a massive impact, I think, on our communities. Um, mm-hmm. We did a survey and, you know, one respondent said that they had had three deaths in their um in, in their immediate network. Um, and so, you know, the impact of that, we really shouldn't be underestimating. And what we need to be doing is preparing for the fallout of, of, of COVID. So, you know, lockdown is, you know, it's, you know, it's been really disruptive. It's been really kind of difficult, but actually the impact of COVID is going to, the you know, the long-term impact of COVID for our communities is going to be quite significant. And so we need to be at the forefront. So if there is a meeting, you find yourself there and you have your voice, you know, heard. And, you know, um, just um, like, um, sorry, I've forgotten your name, but the, um, the uh, sister space, you know, being in that space, whether you have been invited or not, you know, it's really important that our voices are, are, are heard and that we get involved in these um, sort of mechanisms, really. Wonderful. Um, what I would also add is, you know, there's a, there's been a lot of talk online about this new government inquiry um, and a lot of logistics around uh, people like Trevor Phillips leading it. So, you know, what are your current thoughts about the launch of this inquiry into the disproportionate BME deaths in relation to COVID-19? So I think that, um, I think it's a positive thing that um, there is an inquiry. Um, I think what is sad is that, you know, we've had so many people die and um, so many kind of families and friends of the people that have been lost um, who've been impacted. And so it's almost like, why why does it take so long for people to really see and, and to listen to communities when, you know, people have been saying this for a very long time, quite early on into the, pan, you know, to the, into the pandemic. And we kind of could see that in happening in the States. So why the UK would have thought that they would have been any different, um, you know, does kind of beg some questions. I think that, you know, positive thing is that, um, you know, that the inquiry is being led by, um, you know, black people, which is, Um, you know, a positive thing. Um, I think some of the issues around um, when we're thinking about um, the the kind of, I suppose in terms of when we're thinking about, again, from a structural perspective, the pool in terms of who you would select or involve in um, an inquiry like this, it's actually quite small because the black middle class in the UK is, is, is relatively quite small. You tend to find that you bump into the same faces, you know, you know, quite often. So, um, and I think that it's going to be important for the inquiry to make sure that it is engaging as broadly as possible to kind of ensure that the voices of black people are are in, you know, are kind of considered. Um, I think the other thing around the inquiry that I think 
um, it's, it's going to be turned around in quite a short space of time in terms of the timelines that have been proposed. So that raises some questions about, you know, the, the, the depth of the inquiry and potentially maybe some of the quality. Um, potentially there are some risks, but again, it does depend on how well it's going to be resourced. And I don't think that that is um, necessarily kind of public. Um, but I would just encourage, um, you know, anyone who is approached to um, kind of feed into this to do that. And I think that, you know, um, recently the Women and Equality Select Committee, um, they had a call for evidence last week. And so um, as Black Five, we used, we, we had a survey, or we still got a survey going um, at the moment where we were collecting, you know, people's experience experiences and, and we use that to help inform that that report um, but again you know you don't have to be an organization to do that you can be an individual and you can send in your story and I think that as black communities we need to start kind of making use of these mechanisms to ensure that our voices are heard we have now come to the end of our blam uk launch episode for our new podcast thank you all for tuning in and make sure you share subscribe and follow us on social media we are at blam charity on instagram and on twitter our website is www.blamcharity.com we are also providing throughout this covid lockdown free black history worksheets and interactive sessions for young people aged 6 to 16. So if you know anybody interested, tell them to visit our website, www.blamcharity.com, so they can access this really useful, fun and exciting resources we've created for them. Thank you, and until next time, keep safe and make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Bye.